Hey everyone, it's Commodore, and I'm really excited to have this interview with Luis Vicente. We're going to be talking about a whole bunch of different things. I'm just really excited about how Luis thinks about this space and his experience, and we'll get into all the fun and synergy here. But when I met him for the first time and we had this conversation, it was just really exciting to see a lot of the shared mental models of what the future could really look like. I'm going to try my best to use the word football instead of soccer when we talk about this sport. But Flex and I like to normally do some sort of intro kind of icebreaker type question. And so I had to go digging a little bit in order to get something in the football world that I felt might hit a little bit. But so the question I wanted to ask you was, would you rather be the best player in a World Cup final and lose or win the World Cup having not played a single second the entire tournament? Where's your head at? I don't think any answer here will be right or wrong because I think it's a very open question. But I, especially in collective sports, and again, and, and we're talking about football or basketball or any other collective sport, it's especially when you're representing your country, your nation, which is almost the ultimate thing, I think, for any athlete. So when you basically have a long career and you gave everything, you know, for so many years, and suddenly you are representing your community, your, not just your city or your hometown or your family, but you are representing actually the entire nation. And I think this is almost like the ultimate experience of a collective spirit. And in a way, that team, those 23 guys that are there representing their country or the 12 or 13 in other sports, they, they definitely represent millions of people. And I think there is, that's why I was saying again, that on that specific case, I'm going collective. Yeah. Yeah, so I was thinking about my answer for this, and I think like a little bit ten, depending on how many times I might be able to go to the World Cup was this. And maybe it's a little bit of the selfishness, but it's I've always had this entrepreneurial spirit of wanting to have control over my own fate a little bit, and saying like, "Hey, I'd rather be at a smaller startup and be able to put my hands on it and live or die." rather than being part of a larger conglomerate because of this sort of like feeling alive element. And so I feel like if I could only play in one World Cup, and I just had one shot, I think I might lean the first one just because I would just as, and maybe this it's a really interesting like personality thing right there, but I would want to give it my best and lose then to, and maybe if you do a great job of running like practice, so you're on the practice team and you're helping keep the better players, like I've certainly had that in my basketball career, but I think I lean towards the first one and it's a really interesting question. Yeah, but I also agree again with yours. Again, it's also, and I'm sure that in the mind of every player, every athlete that represents his nation at a world global event, that question is very much in their mind. So again, because especially when you are that athlete that can be a game changer player in the pitch, so definitely <laughs> that question will be there always 24-7. But that's a great question to start. Yeah, that's a really great point. Yeah, you represent a whole movement behind you. Whereas if you're just playing basketball fan, Milwaukee Bucks or something like that, it's, yeah, you're doing it, yeah, for a more individual-ish view. As Yeah, that's a really great point. And, and you have an extensive background, so I'm going to try to just hit a couple little uh, points that I think our audience would extra get excited about. But I also would love you to briefly walk everyone through it. But you've been an agent, you've been, worked with incredible soccer clubs, football clubs, some of the most prestigious clubs around. You've been involved, I think, in this digital and sports combination. You know, you and I had this fun conversation around FIFA and the EA sports game. And obviously, I think you're on the an advisory board of, of Socios. And you've just had a really awesome kind of well-rounded view of soccer, 
and I did it again, football, <laughs> all the way into the technology. What do you feel like is the thread through your career? Like, what has been your journey? Yeah, it's a long career, right? So again, it's been 30 years in sports, which the truth is like I start by accident, right? So I'm basically graduate as a lawyer and the opportunity to get into sports actually on IP, so and on the IP part. And actually on, on the model car business, which is theoretically has nothing to do with sports. But basically that collectible business allowed me to interact with Formula One with NASCAR, IndyCar, drivers. And, and actually my passion as since a young kid was motorsports and cycling. Right? So that's the two sports I always loved. And actually having the chance of then getting into the art of motorsports into Formula One and all the US competitions for me was amazing. And then so that took me into talent management because, of course, you start to know the athletes. My first client was a Formula One driver, which I basically started as his lawyer and his commercial agent, which was a Portuguese F1 driver called Pedro Lamy. So then I moved, because of Pedro, I moved into soccer. Luis Figo was my first client. We then became one of the best footballers in the world. And I also I started as his lawyer and his commercial agent. And then was, I think, my life was always about being in the right place in the right time and working very hard. Always for the opportunity, sweat the opportunity. Because then, by Luis, I got, of course, access to what was then the golden generation of Portuguese football, the generation that went to the Euro 96, which had some of the best footballers in the world. So when I started to work with so a lot of them, pretty much everyone, because at the time there was also not a lot of people or in sports in Europe doing martial work. And then basically that, that allowed me to find an area where basically uh, I had the privilege to be one of the leaders. And then, you know, I moved, sold my business, bought back my business then in 2000. And then, of course, there is this big episode of Luis shifting from Barcelona to Real Madrid. Uh, which is still a story that everybody talks, especially in Catalonia and Barcelona, because it's not easy to be Portuguese and be basically become actually an hero for the Catalans, and actually embedded into the Catalan culture. And being such, such a loved player and then actually being transferred to your biggest rival, when actually the player did not want to join the other club, is definitely a, a life experience. And, and that, of course, came after the Euro 2000, where Portugal was one of the leading teams. Then, of course, with Luis in Madrid, I was part of actually the first team in soccer, in football, that was different. And that came with a totally different strategy from anyone else, which was Real Madrid and the famous Galacticos era. And then I still very thankful for to life to have given me that opportunity of meeting the president Florentino Perez, which is still the president today, which by far, you know, the most unbelievable visionaire I ever met in sports because... It's not easy when you get 2000 to probably the biggest football club in the planet, which was very old style managed and very lost in cultural interactions for many years and basically come up with a totally different model. And actually, I have to say that you are a big basketball fan, so that will be nice, a nice piece of news for you. But actually, the decisive idea that basically allowed Florentino to understand the potential of what he could do in football is actually the Ireland of Trotters. <laughs> because you, you definitely was inspired once by seeing them playing, you know, having some of the best actually players all together in one team playing to give a fantastic show to the crowds and to the fans. And that was the basics of that project was actually when no one think it was possible to actually bring the best footballers in the planet in that of that era together in one team. And of course, the project had eyes and woes, but it was still amazing how when those guys were actually managed to play as one. They were unbeatable. So when I saw some of the most beautiful moments in the sport, actually seeing games of those guys. I remember Real Madrid, Manchester United 
in 2002, 2003 season, where basically I saw two of the best football games ever of my life, where you have two biggest teams playing against each other, and you have Real Madrid, especially in the first game, dominating totally Manchester City, or Manchester United, sorry, which was a second division team. And then it, it was interesting because it was the first team to understand the power of the brand, and was the first team to actually engage their athletes and actually creating a joint venture to export together their commercial rights was the first team to actually go on China on tour. So the first European team or football team to go on China on tour, which was, it's amazing to consider this when this what happened 18, 19 years ago, right? It's not like it happened 50 years ago, but that shows how football was so backwards and it was so classic as well in, in their approach. Then, of course, I was doing all the transfers for the club, was fantastic. And of course, I was also becoming agent for many of the players like Ronaldo and Roberto. And of course, work with Andriy Shevchenko, so as well, which was an unbelievable time of my life. I think was the, the first generation of players, at least in football, that understands they were global brands. Of course, digital was still just in in his very early stage beginnings, so that that was basically the missing part. But for me, it was a wonderful experience that I'll never forget. Of course, then I sold my business in 2006, and then I wanted to basically on on sports and then basically the transformation of sports because I always look at sports maybe different from my generation. I always look at the biggest community in the world, probably the biggest religion in the world because the emotional commitment and blindness that community has towards the club they love or the player that they adore or the sport they, they like to play, it's unique. I don't think there is any other activity in the world that can showcase that so intensively. And then basically that's when I decided to dedicate my life to that. But there's been a long journey since 2006 that took me to many different projects to work with Red Bull, with Ferrari in Formula One, being involved as well on the World Cup of Motorsports, something that doesn't exist unfortunately today, but was called A1GP, which was a great project that is. So then I came back to soccer, football with Manchester City, which was as well an amazing opportunity to build a brand in a totally different way. And again, we're first, the first club that actually think on building a brand outside the pitch and not necessarily by what we're doing on the pitch. And that actually took us into a very aggressive strategy of using Manchester United, of course, global awareness and our famous welcome to Manchester poster that is still seen today as one of the greatest marketing stunts that was ever played in the sport was exactly using Manchester United robustness worldwide, positioning worldwide to actually make people understand what Manchester City was because at the time there was not global awareness about that club. And we were world first in so many things. We were the first team to have actually a digital team. So we were the first football squad to have a technology team. We were the first one to have a data team. We were the first one to actually put a camera on a tunnel and showcasing everything that was happening before and during the game, which actually would make us understand there was a digital community and audience for that product, because at the time nobody could actually understand still very well the power of digital. We were the first team to actually do a strategic relationship with EA on a very different way. So we were the maybe it's still today the only team to have access to the date of the game, of the FIFA game. And that actually that allowed us to understand at the time before City was still before winning on the pitch actually the global audience and the global interest that we were generating, especially on the younger generations. And we were actually the first football team to present a player on the game, right? so rather than on a physical press conference, which is, so we did, it was basically a flat, I'll say an unbelievable fresh air, you know, so into the sport. And actually that was very interesting because it inspires so many clubs on their own journey, you know, to digitalization and to transformation and innovation, which for me 
was amazing to see. Then I was as well in Valencia, so football club, traditional Spanish brands, one of the biggest as well football clubs in Europe, a club that had one of the most unbelievable, grateful and passionate communities I ever saw in my life. So basically, actually a great example of our community organized to save their club from bankruptcy, what she did in 2009, crowdfunding, you know, dozens of millions of euros to save the club from bankruptcy. That's unbelievable. So for there was 48,000 fans, they were shareholders. And that was something that I think was special, very special. But it was actually interesting to bring that club back to the place it belonged, winning games, fighting for Champions League positions, basically to become the beacon of innovation in La Liga, which is, of course, is one of the biggest leagues in Europe. And then, so when I left, so I went to FIFA, so as basically with the mandate to transform football and create basically new ways of generating different engagement layers with the football community, transforming women's football, transforming as well the technology side of the sport again was, I think, an unbelievable journey for me as well. And then more recently, I was as well the CEO of Eleven Sports and member of the board of Acer Ventures, which is the holding company, which is also the main shareholder at Leeds United, the famous Premier League club. But especially with Eleven Sports as well, very interesting digital content player, which is revolutionizing as well sports consumption and streaming in Europe. And there's been quite an interesting as well journey for me. And then last year, so I decided to stop working full time and basically do in a way my third chapter, I'll say my professional career and come back to my country that I so much love and coming back to, to live in Portugal and then stay more close to the family, but especially you now to, to still play my role on helping sports to be transformed. And today I'm helping a lot of different organizations across the ecosystem. I'm chairman of Apex Capital, which is quite an interesting platform, investment platform, working with more than 75 athletes around the world on entrepreneurship and basically doing a lot of investments in, in a lot of modern companies in the digital space. And so we did already 18 investments. Of course, I'm also on the advisory board of Socios.com as well of Real Fever. So a very interesting NFT marketplace and fantasy sports company. Also a Common Goal, which is the largest sports for good organization. So in, in football and then working with many different organizations with 777, with the Portuguese Football League and many others, and still trying to contribute to the industry I so much love and actually the industry that gave me everything in my life. And I'm always so thankful. And, and it's also my way to give back, <laughs> you know, still today. And you touched on a couple different trends at different times, but what do you feel like is the big trend that's going on with sports globally right now? Yeah, I think there is a few, but I'll say that again, for me, a very important one is basically the shift I see on the business model of sports. And I'll say that for the last 30 years, you definitely have a sustainable model that actually what I think on my perspective, the engine that makes sports, this professional sports the big industry that they are. And I'll say this was almost the holy trinity made of three different players, which was, of course, the big sports rights holders and their connection with the big media companies and the big commercial companies, right? So I think the advent of sponsorship, the advent of media rights and that consolidation really built that, that very strong model. I think already for a few years, that model is coexisting with another one. And there is a power shift that maybe people is not or seeing it so clearly but there is this power shift really in terms of it's almost a transfer of control from actually what has been a b2b business to actually a b2c and i'll say that there is also a new holy trinity that is taking over and i'll say 
the first part of that combination is definitely athletes and fans because Definitely fans are at the center of the sport. They are the true owners of the sport. Their commitment, their life commitment in, in some cases, it's mind-blowing. And I still know, for instance, in, in football, a lot of fans that had a bond or bought a bond of that club or invested in one stock of that club. And they keep it religiously, physical title on their wall. <laughs> so that for me is almost the ultimate expression you know, of you, of the love and the passion that you dedicate to a sport and to an organization that represents everything that you believe. And for me, one thing I want to add on that is it's funny to hear that because I grew up in the Northeast Wisconsin area, Green Bay Packers, and they're the one NFL team. And Green Bay Packer fans do the exact same thing. It's a piece of paper in the kitchen on the wall. It's one share. It is a source of immense pride. It's funny how, how humanistic that is, regardless of where you're in the world. Yeah, I know. It's unbelievable. And I think fans, they give so much every day to the club they love. And I don't think a lot of times they get the right reward or the right recognition for their role. And I think definitely there is a growing role for fans to play as there is a growing role for athletes. I think I, I grow with a generation of athletes that today it's already becoming CEO of big sports organizations you have case of Oliver Kahn, for instance, in Bayern Munich, which now is the president. You have Kevin van der Sar, the famous goalkeeper, which is now the CEO of Ajax. You have one of my former players, Rui Costa, who is now the president of Benfica. So you have definitely a generation that already is taking over to a certain degree of influence in the sport. I would think that this generation that is currently here will be really a game-changing generation in the sense that they will become owners of the sport. They will become owners of sports. They'll become owners of teams and they will definitely once and for all and them and the community that they represent once and for all find ways to understand and to talk with each other. Because the biggest problem that you have, one of the biggest issues for me in sports is the fact that the relationship between the sports and its fans has been very much single direction, has not been bidirectional, right? As it should be. And because, and this is not a recognition that sports don't want to talk to fans, but it's actually a recognition that sports don't know their community. This has been there for many years, unfortunately. And the level of knowledge, once and for all, that sports have of their community needs to grow. And that relationship needs to be a daily relationship, needs to be a permanent relationship. And the capability of listening needs to be there, which is something that, unfortunately, sports today. They don't like to listen too much to what fans have to say. And this is also something that I think has to change. But I think that in this area, this is one of, I think, the big game changers in this model. I'll say the second point for me, very important, is the advent of data companies, especially. And I think this also reflects on what I just said about today. Every sport claims to have a big community, right? So, of course, if you ask any sport, every sports franchise, how many fans they really know, numbers will be staggering low and this is something that once and for all has to change and again and also what has to change is that sports cannot again lose again in a way the relationship because what happened for instance with the big digital platforms with the facebook's of the world with the rules of the world so i was there many years ago when they came and knock on the door of the big sports franchises and big sports rights holders asking them to join the platforms and promising that okay by now finally you're going to understand your community, you're going to be able to talk to your community. And what happened actually, like sports just created a business that has absolutely no control and lives in the hands of third party companies. 
And I think this once and for all needs to change. And I think it's important that whatever is the next generation of data companies that our generation is, is a generation that everything is cross-functional and is not just basically a one single owner that controls that community and monetize that community but also that community can basically as well take it, taking more control of the ecosystem. And finally, I think is the investors, right? Now I'll say this because in the digital economy, I don't know any business that has grown to the maximum effect it can have without having actually access to external capital at a certain stage of its development. And I think sports for many years has been in a way close to the external investment because you know, always there was always this positioning or this clear perspective that sport didn't need anyone because of the revenue it was generating. But the truth about sport is like the revenue was never democratically distributed. And of course you have the big brands and the big ecosystems that claim 90, 95% of the revenue, and then you have the rest. And then definitely, I think it's very interesting what is happening in, especially in, in, in the COVID and the post-COVID world, where basically you see a lot of investors coming into sports. And I think there is a lot of good examples, but there is also a warning that you need to do it in a much more cross-functional way, right? Because you just cannot open the door to external investors on a moment where Basically, the sports is at its lowest point in terms of financial strength. And I think it's very important, especially in Europe, right, where you see a lot of cases of everyone and anyone trying to commercialize rights and trying to commercialize their asset value, sometimes not in the best conditions. And I think we also need to do a better model on that. But I'll say that this is a very important trend to me. I'll say the second one is... Of course, the advent of Web3 and especially the advent of blockchain. And we tend to be sometimes very reducing in terms of the real impact of blockchain in sports because it seems sometimes the, the utility is only financial, which is a, a big mistake. And But I think blockchain has definitely the power to transform sports and complete the model that has been there for so many years in terms of creating once and for all the knowledge of the community that sports represents and create that real interaction, daily interaction and permanent interaction, creating as well conditions for the sports fans to really actually get a return on their investment, wherever it's because they are gamified by experiences that the athlete or the club they love or the sport they love is giving them, or because they, can, they are giving actually ways of monetizing their own personal data or monetizing their own fanhoods in, in many different ways or even basically giving them a, a far better experience and a personalized experience where they are. Because sports as well tend to forget multiplicity of types of fans that it represents, right? Because and especially in football, you see this for many years, football clubs tend to know their local communities, the community that buys a season ticket and goes to games. They tend to forget the international community or even the, the community that is outside that 30, 40 kilometer radius. And I think that's definitely something that blockchain will be here to help to solve. And the adoption, of course, will take time, but I believe a lot in that opportunity. And I think then in, in terms of all the user cases that blockchain can build, I think that's definitely, for me, massive trends. Wherever, you know, this is in the digital collectibles space, it is on the DAOs space, which I think there is a massive as well opportunity. Wherever is in the virtualization of sports, and the metaverse, whatever is in building new ecosystems. So we did, but I definitely believe that will be a, a massive trend for the next seven to eight years. And definitely giving sport the opportunity to ask the right questions to its community, because 
Again, if you ask today any sport, what are definitely the user base of the future? How Generation Z is going to consume the product in the next three to four years? Nobody knows. And definitely these questions need to be made and need to be answered once and for all and need to be accepted and need to basically be able to influence the right decisions on the right shoulders. Yeah, one of the things I heard, you talked a little bit about the old paradigm and how it was one directional. You talked a little bit about... I'm going to use the word modularity saying, hey, like this object is, you were talking about the Facebook ecosystem as an example, and it's, that was a predatory structure and this self-sovereign maybe is a better word. And I feel like a lot of the ethos in Web3 are inherently like that, right? It's like saying, hey, this object you forever own, you forever control, you have the ability to sell it, to trade it, to do these things. It's You're giving the sovereignty things. And then because the object has sovereignty, then you know, the, the the sports team, I feel like has to honor it and treat it in a different way. And so it's just interesting to hear, I think, some of the trends that you talked about there with Web3's kind of core ethos lining up really well with what you feel like needs to change. Is that, does that ring true with you? And I'm probably <laughs> asking an obvious question there, but is, is that part of the piece that sticks together? Yes, yes. And, and I will elaborate a little bit more because, again, there is a lot of areas that touches and interacts, right? But let's start by the experience. So today I will consider globally the experience of a sports fan actually to be very poor because uh, you're very limited by where you are. You're very limited by your own social economical background. You're very limited actually by your kind of membership title because I'll say sports sometimes tends to consider a fan actually the same individual everywhere and doesn't admit that sometimes this guy is a fan because he's his third club or is because he saw some piece of content that actually resonates with him or because he saw something special from a fan and this I think is something very special but the experience piece is definitely a very important one I'll say that everything that is related with talent as well, it's for me, Web3, it's a massive step forward, right? Because if you look at how talent has been detected and has been developed for many years, has been, I'll say, a very obsolete way of doing it, right? So if you actually were born in Nigeria and you're trying to be an NBA star one day or a big football star in Europe, right? You are actually in the ends of destiny a lot of times, right? So we need to be in the right place in the right time to be detected by a scout that came for that very remote location to see you play once. And you still have to be lucky. So to be caught into the right organization that actually develops you and you're not basically restricted access. And I think when you look at what Web3 can do for the, the scouting business, what it can do for the talent detection piece, it's a game changer, right? Because simple things like today, okay, we have sometimes in remote locations, you don't even know the true age of the player because Sometimes this young athlete was registered only four years after he was born because it's a problem with location, with distance, with access to central government services. So basically today I'll say that if you look at how you can basically create much modern ways of evaluating the true age of a player, detecting talent, actually having a way for that talent to be showcased. And today you have already some organizations doing, you know, very early already journeys into that, which been mind-blowing for me to see. I'll say that the interesting piece as well, even how you manage to promote young athletes through their careers, right? Because depending on the sports you are, so sometimes especially individual sports, and I'll talk about some a sport that I particularly love, motorsports, right? So again, if you try to get Formula 1, you have to spend millions of dollars just to try to knock on the door of Formula 1, right? You need to go on all the lower tiers, you know, motorsport series. 
and you need to be really good talent, but you need as well a lot of financial support. For many years, a lot of this talent was lost, right? Because they could not find an investor to support them or they could not find a manufacturer to get them embedded into journey. So I think for this kind of sports, there is many more. It's not just motorsports from cycling, from many other sports. Actually, I have the chance of tokenizing athletes of supporting expiring athletes at scale that for me it's, a, it's as well a big game changer how you share information with fans and how you let fans interact on a daily basis with you and interact on the decisions the club take and again and sometimes you know it's something that i don't understand again sometimes clubs take decisions for their fans without knowing their fans so how can this work because there is a problem definitely there and if really i think Web3 definitely is the space for me where this can happen. I think the fan revenue sharing, right? So, because today you see the world actually moving into not a very good place. Unfortunately, a lot of families in many parts of the world that don't have minimum substance conditions. And I definitely think the combination of sports and Web3 and blockchain will allow actually this is to, to guarantee minimum substance conditions, right? Or whatever this by personal data marketplaces whatever this is for creating their own content and be able to monetize their own content. So it, there is multiple new avenues that I think can be created by sports and we can get out of this looks like one single way of doing things. <laughs> because I think as well, the way you can personalize and you can definitely create multiple products that adapt to each end user is that definitely something that you are going to do in the next five to six years. But definitely you need to have the patience to do this medium, long-term journey, right? So it's not going to be solved in a year. So maybe you need five, six, seven years to basically arrive to a great point in time. But definitely I believe in the journey ahead. Yeah, that's, it's a helpful framing of how Web3 kind of fits in there. And I agree with a lot of those trends in there. And I, my pragmatic minds keep, they started, okay, like, what does that look like as an app or on the blockchain? And so I'll spare the audience some sort of technical ideation, but mm -hmm. Right in the beginning of that question, you'd made a really simple but profound unlock for me. You had said this phrase that sport has traditionally been B2B and it's converting to B2C. That is just, it's really interesting statement. And I want to try to play back some of it and have you correct me or agree. But when I think of like a B2B sales process, organization, how you structure that, and you were talking about the old the triad of the stakeholders, I'm picturing it's like, okay, we're going to spend money to get players. We're going to do media deals with the national broadcasters and Coca-Cola and Budweiser. And then we're just going to put this product out there. And then that happens. And then all of the adjustments that my business is going to do is thinking about Budweiser's concerns or my players' concerns or the stadium's concerns. It's just like very at this level of really focusing on my vendors and making this product on the field really great, but not really thinking about the actual fan out there. So when I hear you say this B2C switch, it's really taking that customer, in this case, the fan, and putting them right at the top in that focus point. And then everything else, the vendors, the stadium, the players, the, the sponsorships, everything is emergent from that. Is it is that a good encapsulation of that transition in your mind? Yeah, yeah. Because there is one point that sits behind it, right? If you look at the last 30 years, you see the big evolution of fans have eaten with the teams or the players or the sports they love. But those organizations have not actually changed the way they interact with fans. And I think that's the basic 
problem right behind that. And I think as well, more and more, we're going to see the advent of new sports. And I think that's another very special point of that equation, because today we already see a lot of actual interest about some sports in terms of mass participation. So you see that in running, that in cycling, that in so many areas. Actually, by the way, in football, which is by far the biggest mass participation sport in the world, nobody actually sees it too much as a mass participation, but it is. And I think that's also a very important piece because in the modern world we live in today, where you have access to data, you can stream your own game, you can create your own content, user-generated is definitely a massive thing. Uh, you know, you can actually organize digitally competitions. <laughs> you can do everything and anything. Then you can actually not just create your real version of it. You can actually create your virtual version of it with the right gaming ecosystem. So that for me is the key, right? Is I see fans more and more, not just be able to influence the sports, the professional side of the sport, but definitely as well be capable of creating a much bigger amateur movement, right? So about the greatness of playing the sport they love. And actually in a much more organized way, for instance, for many years, I'm convinced that, for instance, an amateur World Cup in football will be probably a bigger event than the professional football World Cup we've seen today. Because nothing, as we said in the beginning, nothing beats you representing your own nation. And this is something that I think for me is very important. Now, I think exactly that transition, of course, that in the professional sports, in the professional world, in the big sports, that B2B dominance coming now to a much more B2C. And, but we're still in the beginning of the journey, right? So again, it's still so much to do in this because we tend to talk about B2C when we talk about, okay, media, direct to consumer, but it's still very much the early days because it's still not the personalization that the end user wants. And when there is, there is a massive fragmentation, right? So which basically everyone today has to have probably eight subscriptions to see every content that it wants to see. So there's still a lot of work to do on that. But basically having the ability of influence the current sports and being able to create new sports and being able to actually personalize the existing sports to new interactions for me is fundamentally important. And that's why as well, I believe a lot in virtualization for many years and especially virtualization of sports. And we all know, again, especially the ones that have young kids, when you go to a stadium again, and you bring your 10, 12 year old, again, he might be there with you physically in the arena, but he's doing so much other things with his time. So, which sometimes they are connected with actually the real action. Some other times they aren't, but that's exactly the generation that we want. Time is basically of essence, right? And this is something that a lot of traditional sports solos have not still understand. And the day that maybe they understand is maybe too late. They lost it forever and they will lost it for something else. And that is also, in a way, the danger that the current stage of traditional sports has. Can basically the sport be impacted as well, listening to fans and listening to the different communities, not just the traditional fans, but actually these younger communities that in a way connect with sports by a very different way, by a very different angle. For instance, one of the interesting pieces of data retained from FIFA days, the FIFA game with EA, actually there's a community of 200 million players and a big percentage of that community actually understands soccer or started to become a football soccer fan because of the game, not actually by playing the game or by actually seeing the game on TV or in any other device. And this is what I'm talking. So it's that's definitely the opportunity, like any modern business, to listen to your consumer, to listen to your end user, 
and to let them impact and influence your business. Yeah, I love that. And as that's certainly been my journey getting into football was all of my friends playing FIFA, wanting to be competitive and beat them in FIFA, buying the game, playing it a bunch, and then figuring out like, oh, this is how you pass. And like, I have no idea what the lineups mean and the strategies. And I'm asking my friends and I'm watching on TV. And then, like, and then you find yourself exactly what you said, pulled in through the video game first. And then all of a sudden you're watching games as opposed to, I think, that opposite flow of assuming that you bought the game because you're into the sport, and which is a fair assumption. But I think you're totally right with this new generation. And even thinking about the way that the younger generations consume highlights in entertainment through algorithmic feeds now. TikTok is going to show you this really amazing goal because it's an amazing goal and everyone's reacting to it. And perhaps there's going to be some nuance that's going to pick up in you that is sort of a fandom. But like, it's not really explicit where maybe when I watch ESPN SportsCenter, it's like, hey, I'm like waiting for the section for them to cover my team because they go through every team and every highlight and they have their top 10. And that's at the end of the show. That is a really a reframing of all of that. And so I'm thinking of the deconstructing of, yeah, you're probably behind an algorithm if you're a professional sports team for almost everything you want to do. And so owning that relationship directly is a big deal because otherwise an algorithm, you could probably build out algorithms to curate your stuff, but you kind of want it in that silo not to be the everything stuff. That's really fascinating. Yeah, and also that deconstruction is essential because again, if you look at sports events, okay, let's pick up a soccer game of 90 minutes, right? It's thousands of moments, but that thousands of moments create millions of moments. So in the ends of the fans, and this is for me, I think where I start to see the big impact of the communities that love sports in different angles, wherever they are, a traditional classic fan, 60 years old, always love the same club or a young fan that actually met that sport by playing the game. So all those two almost paradox there's a paradox perspective but uh, again i think once and for all as well in, U in u.s sports you always have had a, a much more open perspective about this that actually one doesn't cannibalize the other so because you still will have for the next 20 years an audience that would like love to see a sports event for his entirety in a big screen at home so that generation will still be there at least for two decades a little bit more so while you have as well a generation that would like to see six seconds of something that attract their attention, would like to create immediately, register their own version of that moment and create discussion. And this is the beauty of it, right? I think it's a moment in history that is so antagonic, but is beautiful exactly because that antagonism. And that I think that is what may be the best thing that ever could happen in sports history. Because I don't think we'll ever have a moment like this in time where everything can still be redefined, still respecting DNA, right? Because there is an essence of DNA that will still remain in terms of the passion, in terms of the commitment, in terms of the love. But I think we just basically cannot lose this opportunity to make it right. <laughs> Yeah, that's a beautiful framing of it. I get asked this question a lot, and I'd be curious your opinion of it. If you fast forward maybe 20 years, I think people hear about Krauss's mission and his fan ownership. And I think there's a lot of subtleties of you're talking about fan ownership in a minority position, a majority position, like all oh, there's so many different facets to it. But how do you see maybe the different buckets of ownership looking over the next 20 years? Is it going to look similar to the structure it does now where you really basically have high net worth individuals and maybe a small syndicate that is, is a majority ownership and then they're peeling off really small pieces do you see some different models coming together like how do you see the world of different buckets of ownership 
Yeah, I think that will be a very interesting area of interaction for at least the next 10, 15 years, because I think today you're going to start to, to move very quickly into an hybrid era, right? Where the traditional model of ownership of the last 20, 30 years, where big owners, big corporations, big network individuals, countries <laughs> as well, come to the ownership of sports franchises. And at least we're talking about the big sports franchises, because the second, third tier is still different. It's still much more community-owned, because let's not forget that sports is community and there's always been we always the only thing is like doing a journey so we add different things to it but the essence is still there as a community sports but i'll say at the top tier level so i'll see basically an hybrid era where you're going to start to see basically more and more athletes and fans taking ownership positions so in teams in sports i'll see that growing from minority growing to majority and i'll see that happening actually very quickly because today you have already some examples of majority on clubs there's still not a lot you have already athletes owning some interesting franchises you have fans you're taking wider positions but i'll say that i predict that you'll see a moment where fans will start to have a much higher voice on the decisions. Fans will basically organize collectively and will learn how to organize under technology and under mechanisms that allow, you know, basically crowdfunding and, and collective fundraise to be a thing that happens daily. <laughs> so in, in our lives. And I think basically we, in a way, it's very interesting because we'll go back in a way to how sports used to be, right? Because many years ago, every big sports franchise, at least especially in Europe, was owned by its community. And I think it's, I'm not saying one model is better than the other. And I'm not, one is not going to replace the other. I think we are going to see very mature projects on both sides of the fence, because basically I'll see as well that wealthy individuals and private owners will become much more open to listen to their fans, to the community they represent, into the decisions of the club and in a way we'll make sure that as well they are part of the ownership group in real terms for the future as i see as well owners that will trust that actually a community-led process is the best way to, for actually to take that franchise or that sport forward and and i think and the process especially the marketization will be there but especially it will be a visible transparent process decentralized right because the beauty, I think, of this process is, is that every decision will be public, that every decision will be taken by the people, by everybody will have a voice, everybody can have a vote. And again, I think that's, for me, one of the most beautiful things we can start to see in the years to come in sports is having actually that openness and that transparency that has been missing for so many years. Because... Unfortunately, when you look at the top tier of sports, and I'll say almost across all the sports, all decisions are taken at closed doors. Like all decisions are taken, always invoking the interests of the fans of the sport and the users of the sport. But actually, you no, know, almost 99% of the cases, no, no fan has gave one single opinion about it. Only after it's taken. And I think that's for me is the most interesting part of the journey that we are going to see years to come. And like everything, there will be some projects that will become bigger. There will be some other projects that will not be very successful. There will be others that will be adapting, will, will creating different journeys and different narratives. But I think the movement is there and the movement will be unstoppable. So that's what 4C is going to happen. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. 
You had mentioned earlier this relationship between fans, and I think this increased in position of athletes and being in some of these executive positions and inside the business of sports. And then you also mentioned the capital and scaling traditional startups. And when I think about those three groups, you still sort of need a cohesive management layer to bring all those things together. And we can build towards a fully end-to-end decentralized (laughs) autonomous world, which is probably way far away, especially being a builder in the Web3 space. But what I heard in that too is, and something I get really excited about is sometimes people's minds get really wrapped up on like an owner, and then they have this full power to do these things. And there's really great the different ways, and you mentioned you used the word hybrid from the actual kind of equity pool structure, but there's also hybrid, and I think you're alluding to this, of just bringing the community in. You can have a, an owner that is delegates certain decisions, gives them certain types of access, and makes decisions in a more kind of open way. And there's a bunch of corporations here in the U.S. that are benefit corporations now, and they're trying to play around with these different ways of organizing to be more comprehensive and more open-minded. And oh, I'm hearing a little bit of that in some of your thinking here of saying like, there's also ways for existing ownership structures to just change how they operate, which is really interesting and open and a lot of value add there. And I think as well, one point that is very important as well is the sourcing of expertise, because one thing that as well in sports has not been perfect is how access is made to the industry, right? For so many years. Again, I remember when I started, it was almost unthinkable that a guy born in Portugal could actually come to the top tier of the sport. So again, it was not actually something that people will see, okay, this is possible. Because being a small country, being a small community, being a country that is not an economic power in the world, and that was basically almost a big barrier. And I think digitalization actually leveled much more the game. So because basically today, theoretically, everyone that has talent has a better access, has a better capability. Again, I saw projects here in Europe, especially very interesting, for instance, La Liga, the, the Spanish football league. Four or five years ago, they took a very brave decision of actually crowdfunding talent to the league. So they did a global project together with their sponsor, Santander Bank. So when they recruited at the time almost 200 young executives to the organization. Actually, today, the CEO of the league is one of these executives. So actually, that proves that when there is more vision and more openness from the generation that today is at the helm of the sport, you know, the power is massive, right? Now imagine... This transported actually into a world where digitalization opens it to everyone, wherever you were born, wherever, you know, formation you have. And if you have a passion for sport, you can have access to build your own journey into it. And I think there is definitely very interesting chapter that can be built on that, which is open there for the community involvement and for the community decisions. Because I'll say that, and sometimes I see this as well in some projects, right? Sometimes the community is also important that creates an aggregated perspective on things. Because I see sometimes, for instance, if you are a local fan of Manchester United, that you go to all the games, right? You consider yourself to be a prime member, so a a VIP member of the community. So if maybe there is a, a fan of Manchester United in Indonesia that actually spends the same amount of time every day watching the club, nurturing, so all the content that comes and creates his own stories and connects with massive amount of people talking about the club. So he's always seen as a second division member of the community, while 
is actually investing the same time. He has exactly the same passion and he deserves as well to be a respected member of, the, of that community. So Absolutely. within that, we still have as well some work to do because the principle is definitely there. And I think the journey is definitely there to be much more interesting and much more game-changing. But also we cannot have this kind of community privileges almost granted by, let's say, simple proximity reasons. So that is definitely something that we need to start looking how we can optimize. Yeah. So many things that you've said are, A, there's somewhere similar worldviews and excitement of where this could all go. You have obviously so many, I think, stories and data points too that really support it through your robust experience, which is also incredibly exciting to think about. And I did want to take a minute just to make sure I formally announce that we're just thrilled to have you as an advisor to Kraushaus and what we're doing with Kraushaus Capital and Kraushaus Social DAO as well, and really trying to bring a lot of these ideas into reality. And so just really excited to be working with you and being able to leverage your thinking and expertise and making these crazy dreams possible. Although listening to you, it doesn't actually all seem that crazy. It just sounds inevitable, which is always super exciting, but a lot of work to be done. So thank you. Yeah, there's a lot. Oh, but thank you, Commodore, as well. And thank you to Flex, to all the community of Krausau again. I've always been fascinated by Krausau since you started the movement, even if I was at a distance, but I felt in love from the first moment. And I always been following and, and trying to contribute at the distance. Again, I'm really honored to now be as well uh, officially a member of the community. You know, and of course, I'll do my very best to contribute. It's, it's still, I'll say, a, a long journey ahead, which is going to be an unbelievable journey. And again, and I think it's definitely, I'm pretty sure, a movement that will open the door for many others to come in the future and will create a case that once and for all, proves the impact and the influence of community in, in the modern building of sports. And I cannot be more honored and more happy to be here with you today and for the years to come. Yeah, appreciate it. And for listeners, this might be a hint. It may not be a hint. It might be an alpha drop. I'm not sure. Given Louisa extensive background in, in football, I think Krausehaus FC or whatever division that might be to start looking into this world is starting to percolate a little bit. But thanks again for joining the show and sharing your time and wisdom with us today. Uh, thank you for having me here today and I hope that everybody enjoyed. There's a lot to come. And thank you as well for your time and as well, thank you everyone for listening. All right, be well. Be well.